0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Raditya, your host for this episode, and today we are joined by two guests, Dr. Ian Reader and Dr. John Schultz, to discuss their most recent book, Pilgrims Until We Die, Unending Pilgrimage in Shikoku. Um, before we get into the book, um, perhaps we can start with a little self-introduction for our, li- our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, um, Dr. Reader. Can we start um, perhaps uh, from you?
1: Okay, Ian, I'm Ian Reader. I'm I, I'm based in the United in England in the United Kingdom, and I'm actually retired. Uh, I used to be an academic um, who worked at the University of Manchester and uh worked on issues to do with religion in Japan and on pilgrimage in general and, and a number of other topics.
0: Great, thank you. Um Doctor Schultz, can you go ahead and uh, you know, maybe do a little background on what you do and your work. Yeah.
2: Yes, of course. Uh, I, I'm uh, John Schultz. Uh, I'm an associate professor at Kansai Gaidai University in uh, Hirakata, Japan. And uh, thank you so much, Radita, for having us. Uh, we're really excited to, to be here. Uh, most of my work is um, in contemporary Japanese religious studies, uh, looking at religion and pop culture, um, religion and new media, uh, and of course, uh, pilgrimage studies uh, in particular.
0: Great, great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I think I think this book is a fascinating take on the Shikoku pilgrimage. Um, but before we jump into the book, can you share some of the processes that led to the creation of this book? How did this project begin?
2: Sure, that'd be my pleasure. Um, so I studied under Ian uh, as a graduate student, as a PhD student. Uh, in Ian's really famous book on the Shikoku Henro, uh, Making Pilgrimages, um, sort of initially brought my attention to this class of, of repeating pilgrims that kind of go again and again. And later on, I would become acquainted with quantitative data by people like uh, Sato Hisamitsu uh, that would kind of confirm that this there's this really strong trend to uh, repeat pilgrimages uh, in Japan. And when I left for England uh, and studied under Ian, uh, my, my PhD work was on contemporary diaries of the Shikoku Henro. There's kind of dozens of these diaries, and uh, the diaries all had kind of epic narratives, but invariably they all ended kind of with the sentiment that they that they want to come back and do it again, no matter the challenges that they faced. Um, so something that Uh, Ian and I have been talking about for years, uh, and then in 2018, uh, we received a grant from uh, the the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, so we'd like to thank uh, Japanese taxpayers for supporting our effort. uh, To be sure, Uh, those details are available online uh, and through my webpage, uh, japanjohn.com. But when we pitched the idea uh, to the grant uh, body, uh, kind of the initial hypothesis was um, the continuing rep- repetition on the pilgrimage correlated sort of directly with authority uh, in the social system. But really, what we found out in the context of the study is that, like, nearly every aspect of the pilgrimage—from history to folklore to leadership, even to you know basic religious meaning—kind of all of these things. Um, are driven in an underlying sense uh, by this notion of kind of unending pilgrimage. Uh, and finally, I should mention, too, uh, we, we, it wasn't simply Ian and I. We had a really nice uh, team, uh, including uh, four undergraduate uh, women who, who did an excellent job uh, supporting us in, in many in many ways. So, yeah, that was the, the basic starting point.
0: I see. Thank you. Um, Dr. Adir, do you want to add um, anything to that? Yeah.
1: Well, only only that, as John pointed out, when I I had a short section at the end of my book, Making Pilgrimages, about people who did this pilgrimage multiple times, and I called them permanent pilgrims. Um, And then John much later said to me, you know, that's a major finding of your book that, you know, needs to be developed more. And then around the time we started talking about doing a project on it, I read an article by a guy who was a, peer, a guy who'd done some research at Lourdes in France on the pilgrimage there, where people kept coming back, and he mentioned that people kept coming back to Lourdes, and he said this is a topic that nobody has studied, you know, the idea of people complete, repeating pilgrimages again and again, except for Ian Reader, you know, me in in his study of Shikoku. So I'm. That kind of stimulated us to um, uh, look more at this idea. And, of course, what John, John actually went ahead and got the grant from JSPS. I wasn't really part of it. And, and he kind of persuaded me that I ought to get involved in it. And it's been a, a fascinating process ever since in terms of doing the research, which has been some of the most fun and interesting fieldwork research I've ever done.
0: I see. Thank you. Um, Great. So I want to start by sort of talking about the Shikoku pilgrimage itself. Can you tell us briefly about what the pilgrimage is and how it's sort of different or similar from other pilgrimages in Japan?
1: Yeah, okay. Well, it's like one of the classic Japanese pilgrimages, Buddhist pilgrimages, where they, where it's multiple sites. And with Shikoku, there are 88 temples. Um, it's complex as to why there are 88. And again, I wrote about that in my previous book, that previous book. Um, it really formed, developed in the 17th century, although legends trace it back nearly to the 9th century. Its main figure of what... Uh, Of worship is Kobo Daishi, this famous uh, kind of posthumous incarnation of the Buddhist uh, monk and founder of Shingon Shu, Kukai. Um, It's been a pilgrimage that in earlier times was seen as basically a pilgrimage of mostly of poor people and so on. But In modern times, it's become, with motorization and so on, it's become widely practiced and uh, followed in Japan. People do it by bus, by car, on foot, whichever way they want. And it involves going around the island of Shikoku. It's a route of about 1,200, 1,300 kilometers. Visiting 88 temples, you can go in any order you want. The big thing is to complete the circuit of the island to go to all the temples. You can do it in bits. You can do it in one go and so on. It's all up to the pilgrim how they do it. But that's the basic uh, structure of the pilgrimage. And one of the interesting things about it is that that if you go round and visit all the temples, when you get to the last temple, you're not very usually not very far from the temple you started out at. And... Um, the custom is to go back to the first temple you went to on a what's called Ore Mairi to th- give thanks for having safely completed the journey, as a result of which you're back at the start again. And some people just carry on doing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, it, it certainly sounds like a very significant undertaking to sort of be doing, you know, one circuit, let alone like many.
1: Um,
0: well, it so takes in,
1: about 40 or 50 days to walk. It takes... And if you know, technically, it should take about eight or ten days by car. But as we found, some of these really serial, hardcore pilgrims um, who get really obsessed with it manage to do it in even as few as four days and to do maybe seven, six or seven, six pilgrimages in a month. <laughs>
0: Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, now that you have sort of mentioned um, sort of people going by cars, and in, in sort of chapter two, you discuss how modern developments have influenced yeah sort of the way people do the pilgrimage. Can you share more on how the pilgrimage has changed in the past twenty, thirty years or so?
2: Shall I do that, John? Yeah, that sounds great. Please, Ian. Yes.
1: Yeah. Okay. From in nineteen fifty three, the first bus tour went around Shikoku and taking pilgrims pilgrims round. And that kind of changed the aspect of the pilgrimage because it opened it up to more people. You know, a 1300 kilometre walk around the island. It's very tough going because there's lots of mountains and so on. Um, uh, Traditionally, only kind of it was really younger people. you, You had to be pretty tough to do it by the time the buses started and then the cars and so on, it becomes more accessible to older people. And we see increasingly the profile of pilgrims in Shikoku has been older and much more gender diverse. There's now more women than men that do it. But basically, yes, it's become easier to do there's more signage there's more places for pilgrims to stay there's better facilities along the route in fact you know all sorts of things that have made the pilgrimage easier to do in recent years but nonetheless you still get lots of people who walk it there's about three or four thousand as a rule a year who actually walk the whole thing so you know, there's, there's a real diversity of pilgrims along the route, people doing it in all sorts of different ways. And, of course, we explain all of that in the book. And in the previous book too. So you know, if you want to know, know more about that, you got to get the book to do. You've got to get the book and read it. You know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> definitely.
2: Um, yeah, please. Uh, for our, uh, yeah, our in, listeners, please in, do. Uh. It's in
1: paper. It's in paperback.
2: You know. <laughs> it, in Radica, in terms of trends too, it's it's kind of worthy of noting in, in sort of the pre-corona. Um, space uh, the number of international henros we, we speak about this in the book the number of international pilgrims was increasing and in, invariably almost all of them are, are walkers um, so um, as the overall number of pilgrims has kind of decreased there's there's a little ray of hope that perhaps they'll be offset somewhat by uh, increasing numbers of international pilgrims who themselves can be quite compulsive um, about returning and doing it again and again
0: yeah indeed me certainly thank you um so, you know, now that we sort of know that there are um, multiple ways of sort of doing the pilgrimage, um, sort of someone doing ethnography myself, I'm, I'm really interested to hear how you encounter um, these pilgrims. Um, so can you maybe share uh, a little more on the methods that you sort of took um, for this specific sure. project?
2: To to be sure, to be sure. Uh, It's it's a pleasure. I think, Radhika, I I think one thing both Ian and I have is kind of a genuine enthusiasm for uh, the discipline of of religious studies because um, of its, you know, sort of methodological diversity, uh, kind of flexibility and openness. And I think a project like this, you can really see why having like a, a nice toolkit, um, a range of tools and um, a nice range of data really sort of um, illuminates the phenomenon in ways that maybe if you were just a little more centered on a single method, um, you, you just wouldn't get that. So, um, so I think we, we share that enthusiasm. So uh, in terms of uh, our methods, absolutely, we have this kind of synergistic mix of uh, historical, textual, um, and field-based methods, uh, to be sure, which would include things like uh, in-depth interviews with just pretty much anyone who would talk to us uh, about this phenomenon. We would speak to um, pilgrims, of course, priests, uh, administrators for the, the journey. We conducted a survey uh, that was available online. Uh, we, we conducted surveys by mail. Uh, And, you know, just getting a a general feel of the social system through more ethnographic methods. But um, I think with respect to this research, you could appreciate just how much uh, sort of the visual culture of, uh, of the pilgrimage sort of impacted us and how we can see the phenomenon of endless pilgrimage or continuing pilgrimage in the visual culture. So things like, you know, commemorative statues that... Mark milestone numbers of circuits, maybe a hundred circuits or, uh, or, or more. Um, the famous osamefuda, the colored pilgrim name slips, uh, these become even religious objects in and of themselves that people worship even after these sort of repeating pilgrims die. So uh, those kinds of things, uh, the red ink that uh, is left from the stamps. That people receive at at, at at sacred sites. So in a pilgrim stamp book or on a shirt uh, is sort of indicative of uh, um, this sort of phenomenon. So I think in general, um, what I love about our approach is it, is it employs many different kind of methodological tools. But yeah, as Ian was saying, I think More romantically, really. I mean, the joy of the work is 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 was really the kind of stalking (laughs) and accosting pilgrims in the field. And you know, I think about we would start days with kind of no idea um, who we might encounter, who we might talk with. Um, I think in the context of a single day, sometimes our uh, the direction of our analysis changed just based on a you know a few uh, seminal individuals that we met and talked to. And, uh, I think several, several times, you know, Ian and I would find ourselves in situations and, and uh, we would kind of look at each other and be like, wow, you know, is this really happening? It would be, um, almost surreal. Uh, the individuals we encounter and just the incredible enthusiasm these people would have, uh, for the phenomenon. So, uh, Radicha, I think every graduate student, uh, dreams of like, a. um, field work as being a sort of adventure i think it rarely is but maybe this is what this is one case when it when it really kind of felt yeah. like that
1: yeah can i just add in on that yeah um initially there was a lot of what you know there was i went through, we went through a lot of um texts and so on because we've got records of people back in the 17th century doing it multiple times so we were able to trace a history of multiple performance from really from the historical roots of the pilgrimage. So we're showing how it was embedded in the pilgrimage from very early on. And then as John said, we we noted as we went round the round the pilgrimage route, we went round by car, we walked to bits of it, and we actually crashed slept out on the pilgrimage route as well as part of the field work, um, because some of the pilgrims do that as well. Um, and we we noted that. You know, Some pilgrims put up commemorative markers to say they'd done 88 or 100 or 200 or whatever pilgrimages. So we did a lot of epigraphic work. And of course, we did a lot of field work. We we, we got the addresses and names of people who'd done it hundreds of times from their the footer that they left at the temples. Um, we were very fortunate. Some of the temples helped show it, you know, cooperated with us on this. And then, of course, we did basic field work, which involves hanging around on the pilgrimage route, going around the pilgrimage route, accosting pilgrims, talking to pilgrims, uh, discussing, and also we did a number of depth interviews away from the pilgrimage route. Uh, with different pilgrims who told us their life stories and so on that that were you know that went on for hours sometimes that we could flesh out these whole stories so it was a a wide diversity of approaches
0: okay certainly yeah thank you so much it's always it's always fascinating to sort of hear um, you know a little bit more in like the behind the scenes of projects such as this. Um, okay, so now pilgrims. Um, in, in chapter three, um, sort of focuses on you know a group of, of, of pilgrims, right? And it figures that um can sort of be considered perpetual pilgrims, people that are always on the road. Um, did you take sort of a different approach when you sort of um talk to them compared to other pilgrims per se? Um, and, and maybe you can sort of um uh, share on uh, a little bit more on, on the role that these um, figures sort of play in the pilgrimage, because as you've sort of explained in the book, while you know, their numbers are perhaps small, they are a significant group worthy of attention.
1: Well, as I said, the, the you know, the pilgrimage develops out of the idea of ascetic itiner- itinerancy, as we explain in the historical section of the book. And then there are, there are a number, a small number of pilgrims who, effectively have continued like the hijiri of earlier times to live on the pilgrimage and there's there are what we only we touch we make we give the case studies of half a dozen of them in the book and in that we just show the wide diversity of these people some of them are um uh one guy we met that was quite clearly had alcohol problems and we, you know, there are people who, others who do it as extreme asceticism. And in fact, one of these guys effectively gave us the title of our book because we met him, he was doing the Buddhist um, soliciting arms takuhatsu near one of the temples. We had a long interview with him and at one point we asked him, how long do you think he said he'd been walking the pilgrimage for six years at this point as a shugyo as asceticism and we said to him how long do you think you're going to do it for and he said shunumare until i die and in fact after he said that that was bang yes that was one of those eye-opening moments (laughs) and then that phrase kept coming up and not just with the ascetics with the walkers but with people who drove the pilgrimage and so on. That's why the book's called Pilgrims Until We Die. Um, And we also uncovered the case, which um, is a long narrative in the book of a man called Kogetsu-san, who is probably the most interesting character. He's dead now, but he was both a revered pilgrim in Shikoku who walked around the pilgrimage for years with a handcart, He turned out also to be a a man, a a convict, a man who committed an attempted murder. He was a poet, a published poet. He was a womanizer, a TV personality, a gangster, and a a survivor of the war in, in New Guinea, one of the very few who came out of the jungles alive. Extraordinary story of a guy who was both very, much revered as a pilgrim and who turned out to have this incredible criminal past as well. I mean, and, uh, you know, that's a fascinating read. So we met all, there are all sorts of characters doing it for all sorts of different reasons. Um, one guy I tell, it, the st- we tell the story of wh- whom I just met by, I met by chance and had a really long conversation with, um, a long interview with, told him what we were doing and he told me his life story Told us his life story, and he said that he'd lost his job ten years before, um, couldn't find another one, lost his accommodation, set out to find himself again on the pilgrimage in Shikoku, and just kept walking. And he'd found himself. And I said, Well, if you found if if you somebody offered you a job and a house now, would you take it? And he said, No, I'm used to the freedom. I don't want to have walls around me anymore. And you know, so there are all these different stories, all sorts of different levels, all sorts of different motivations, and different experiences people have. All that draw them into the same practice, into the same pilgrimage. And it, in uh, addition, yeah.
2: it, in addition, Radhika, there's kind of all these different types of, of pilgrims we cover: um, individuals sleeping in their car, those sleeping out, as you asked about. Uh, and, and so forth. And what, what was kind of remarkable to us is that they, these groups may have very little awareness of each other. So for instance, uh, we had people tell us uh, that, oh, there are no people who live on the pilgrim trail any longer, uh, even after we had just met them. Oh, no, the, those guys used to exist, but they don't exist. Um, or for instance, we had a motorized pilgrim say, oh, all the studies Shikoku, are all about walking pilgrims. We've been like greatly neglected as a sort of a group of people. So um, it, it's kind of important to understand it's not a sort of unified phenomenon, even though we speak about it kind of in that way sometimes. Uh, in even awareness, even we've had priests that told us that they were completely unaware of these um, individuals sleeping out, living on the pilgrimage um, full time. So yeah, I, I think that that's a, a valuable contribution uh, from the yeah. book, for
1: sure. We also, by the way, we learned, uh, uh, we came across another phenomenon that it's it's kind of interesting in modern Japan. Um, on one of the early, one of our first, I think our first field trip together and we at one of the temples, we met a lady in her 80s who was on like about her 40th field. Shikoku pilgrimage, and we asked her, you know, where do you stay and so on, and she said, shachuhaku, literally sleeping, it, sleeping in my car, and then she opened the boot of the trunk of her car and showed us that she had converted the car had the front seat, the seats stripped out apart from the driver's seat, and had a bed put in there and all sorts of cooking equipment. And we then found this was becoming quite a common phenomenon. And we met loads of people who lived, had converted their cars in order to go around the pilgrimage quicker, to save costs and so on, and to do it repeatedly. And at the extreme end of that, um, we, we have the case studies of a couple of people who've done it 700 plus times uh, and what you know who've done it over a period of like 20 years, eight, 30, 40 times a year, going around 50 times a year or even more going around Shikoku, taking only a few days at a time doing it um, and living in their cars as they do so. Um, And that is, again, an extraordinary and very addictive phenomenon
0: yeah certainly um and i I do want to go back to sort of this this point of the Shachohaku um a bit later, but um th- you know the the figures of of these of these um pilgrims that are just so fascinating um you know I remembered uh, sort of unkai and sort of are particularly uh, memorable when I, I was sort of reading the book. um how do people um and and sort of Shikoku sort of view them are are they sort of aware? Of these perpetual pilgrims, um, and and you know, it depends. I, I know that they're so diverse, but what are some of the common um, sort of reactions that you've um, come across when you sort of talk to people about, um, you know, these these uh, people that are always on the road?
1: Well, I, I remember once we had a, a, a we met a bit a, a Shacho, the boss of a comp a big com, a company in Osaka, who very well off. T- um, We actually took us to a quite a fancy restaurant to be interviewed. Um, And he runs his company from Monday to Friday. Friday evening, he drives over to Shikoku. He sleeps in his car and he walks bits of the pilgrimage. And he does that every weekend and then goes back to his company and his family uh, on Monday morning. Anyway, he's he's one of these interesting guys who weaves the pilgrimage into his professional daily life. To the extent that we we ask the question, when he's on pilgrimage, is that really his home and is his business and his family home in Osaka a kind of temporary respite from the pilgrimage? But he was taught. He mentioned these guys, and then he was very dismissive of them and said that they're, they're, they're the wrong type of pilgrim and so on. So we met people who kept saying the the um, uh, the people who live on the pilgrimage who sleep out they they often get dismissed as alcoholics as beggars and so on we found that some of them did have alcohol problems some of them might some of them did it subsist on begging but some of them were very 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 kind of didn't touch alcohol at all we discuss all that in chap that's in chapter three isn't it we discuss that
2: <laughs> and it I think if you're thinking of, like Ian's talking about really kind of different classes of itinerants, itinerants living in vehicles and itinerants living outdoors. But um, although I think the knee jerk reaction for some individuals would be to sort of classify the itinerants living outdoors um Doing nojuku, sleeping sleeping roughshod is maybe to classify them as as homeless or or reprobates. There's actually genuine um, discrimination against them. But um, as Ian and I discussed, uh, it's not an easy lifestyle. I mean, not only are they exposed to the elements, but they're 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 breaking up camp every day. They're walking huge distances. Um, there's if you were uh, choosing purposely to. To avoid responsibility, it just would not be an ideal lifestyle, um, to be sure. So even, even maybe the more suspect ones um, still require t- significant discipline in order to just kind of keep keep going.
1: I should also add to that that historically there has always been a degree in Shikoku of of of, of um, kind of a repression, repression of people. Walking the pilgrimage, you know, different feudal regimes used to bring in laws against pilgrims doing certain things and very heavily regulate them. Um, there was there were there were attempts after Meiji to sort of stamp the pilgrimage out as a horrible superstition and so on. Um, so it's it's never you know, pilgrims have to an extent always been marginalised in 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 shikoku at least those who exist on begging for arms so the modern guys are still kind of facing the same type of discriminator attitudes that have been around for a long time and actually i've just got an art i've, I've got an article that i've just contributed to a special issue of a journal that's coming out in a year or so's time about this process of marginalization but so anyway yes there are negative attitudes to some of uh, to these people.
2: And even as an institution, um, the the, the Rejokai has banned uh, Takuhatsu solicitation of alms uh, at temples. Actually so, at
1: the temples, yeah.
2: Yeah, so uh, there's even kind of institutional stance against that. So uh, if you can imagine a basic Buddhist practice um, being banned by Buddhist institutions, uh, um, it, it's significant. You can kind of see um, the negative attitudes implicit in that.
0: I see. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. Um, okay, so in, in Chapter 4, you discuss uh, the results from the questioners you sent out. And I noticed a very interesting term that you mentioned in the chapter, the shikoku-byo, right, or the shikoku illness. Can Can you explain what this term refers to? Um, Sort of how common is this term among the pilgrims, and how do people react to this idea of the shikoku-byo? Um,
1: should I do that? Okay, there's two sides. People talk, everybody. the term comes up all the time everybody talks about it you know i've got shikoku bio i've got shikoku technically shikoku sickness or illness but nobody we met said it was a bad thing somebody in one of the guys in a in in the survey said you know that they had shikoku bio and it's great you know it's wonderful i think he said something like shio i you know um people it, it's an interesting thing because there is an addiction we found that there was a dark there was a real compulsiveness and obsessiveness to people doing this pilgrimage hundreds of times but at the same time people found it comforting you know everybody said hey yes i've got shikoku byo. that's why i do it you know why i do five pilgrimages a month that's why i live in my car my, half the year that's often it's people nearly all these people a lot of these people the older people who live in their cars on the pilgrimage are retired it's something to do after work after having spent your life working for a japanese company or something and for some people interestingly that addiction that they embrace is an addiction that counteracts another addiction. One guy there was a guy we talked to who said that he was walking the pilgrimage and he said when I'm not when I'm back at home I'm retired what all I do is sit and drink. I've got nothing else to do. I drink. It's not good for me. I every time my drinking gets to a problem level I go and do the Shikoku pilgrimage and clean up. Then he goes home then the same thing happens again. So his Shikoku-byo, his Shikoku addiction, is a counteraction. It's, it's a cure for his alcoholic addiction. And we found that sort of thing came through a lot. But yeah, Shikoku-byo, the idea of Shikoku illness or Shikoku addiction, is absolutely recurrent. And I suspect you could note In the way that John and I talk about our research, given that I first went to Shikoku and walked it in 1984 and have done research on it ever since on and off. And John's been doing it for, you know, a couple of decades, too. We both felt we could understand the idea of Shikoku-Bio. But Ian's correct. Um, The
2: informants tend to kind of laugh and and think of it as a a positive thing, to be sure. But I I think the tendency with a a lot of pilgrimage conferences and so forth is to kind of look at the phenomenon – with like rose colored glasses that pilgrimage is this sort of wonderful force in the world that should be sort of promoted. Um, but in the context of this work, you can definitely see the, the darker side uh, of things. So you can, um, we have numerous informants that, you know, pilgrimage becomes kind of a mechanism of escape uh, for them. I'm sure. I'm sure there are plenty of informants. You know, their family members probably hate the Shikoku Henro. Um, there's an the ecological uh, destruction uh, uh, w- or just the use of petrol in these kinds of things um, for sort of route after uh, route. So while the pilgrims themselves might not identify Shikoku Bio as being. Uh, a negative condition uh you know uh, i think you can our research definitely points to the, the the darker side of what is normally sort of presented as a as a significantly positive uh, activity
1: yeah yeah one or two people we did talk to did mention that their families their wives or whatever these were used mostly male then not all of the people who do it hundreds of dozens of times, hundreds of times are, but they're predominantly male, um, tended to some of them did say that their families, their wives, um kind of referred to it in a fairly critical way, saying, you know, Shikoku Baka and things like that. Um so yeah, there is that side to it, the darker side, the the compulsive side, the obsessive side. We, incidentally, just on that point, um, we found that very few of these people, the itinerant certainly just did Shikoku, but we found lots of the people who have done Shikoku dozens and dozens of times and even hundreds of times, as as we showed in the, the survey, had also done other pilgrimages like they've done the shodoshima pilgrimage maybe 10 times they've done the saikoku pilgrimage 10 times and so on so these people aren't just aren't only shikoku bior people they are pilgrimage bior they are pilgrimage addicts although shikoku is their main line as it were Mm -hmm.
2: and radita is doing pilgrimage research and so he should be careful he might get hooked yeah <laughs> for
0: sure indeed yeah <laughs> interesting Friends, yeah
1: uh, well, if okay you, so it's... if, you, if you, yeah i was going to say if you can find a topic that enables you to do research and to travel around and hang out in incredibly interesting places like shikoku what's not to like about it <laughs> definitely
0: <laughs> that's right. yeah yeah, yeah that's right. uh, such a fascinating phenomenon Uh, Okay, yeah, to sort of go back to sort of an earlier point um, about the shachihaku, right, sort of sleeping um, in the car as a way of doing the pilgrimage, uh, how prevalent is this practice nowadays? And you touch upon this um, in in sort of the book, but also in your previous book on Onshikaku. Uh, Are there um, sort of noticeable hierarchies that you've sort of um, uh, come across when you uh, talk to people who are taking this method of pilgrimage versus those who are walking or taking a bus tour
1: well it's interesting that um you know people who go on bus tours i mean quite often will say oh we you know walking might be the real thing but actually there isn't any text there's no text there's no historical thing that says you must walk it you know pilgrims in any culture have always used whatever means are available um but sometimes people say, well, if I were younger or so on, I might like to like to have walked the pilgrimage. Um, but the only way to do it is by bus. With the Shachuhaku people, this is something that's really developed in the last couple of decades. I, did, I never saw it in the 80s and 90s. But people, it's become more prevalent. Um, it's a way people can, you know, do the pilgrimage more cheaply because they don't have to pay for accommodation and that has expanded also because shikoku facility the facilities have developed you've got these things called eki no michi where you can pull in park, you can go and have showers you can michi no eki sorry <laughs> michi no eki yeah um, <laughs> um you you've got all these the facilities you've got convenience stores where you can use toilets and get you know food etc so it's become easier to do it and that's developed over the last few years in particular and as that phenomenon you can now get guidebooks to do haku all over japan but that's become a, a, a modern thing mm-hmm. in terms of hierarchies i think the main one we find is of course always connected with numbers you know if I roll into a place and say I've just I've done the pilgrimage 57 times somebody else would say oh wow and then somebody else would come in and say well I've done it 123 times so Mm. there is that kind of I mean I was what we one one interview where kind of one person had done it a couple of people had done it a couple of times and somebody else had done it a dozen times, and then somebody else came along and had done it over fifty times. So there is a hierarchy of performance,
2: hmm. and in people do get to know each other, uh, both meeting at places like Michino Aiki. But um, we've and really this could be a good subject for a follow up study. But um, there does seem to be communication on social media and so forth. Uh, people kind of keeping track of one another uh, more and more often. So. Uh, to, to your question I think there is uh, sort of burgeoning community of shanchu Haku individuals at least those people that are that are die hard that they keep doing it sort of again and again
1: yeah one of one of you know people told us that you know that there were certain places they met up and hung out you know in the evenings and so on um, so yeah they they do know of each other and they uh, often share tips the same is true of the itinerants because that one of the one of the really depth interviews that that we did um, with what the guy we call shamadasan in the book it turned out we 'd already already Harasan the itinerant we mentioned earlier on, had mentioned him as somebody he knew from walking the pilgrimage as another permanent itinerant and said he 's a good guy, and then we met had, to chance on this guy and had a, we said, oh, we know your name from Harasan. So he said, oh, well, you've met Harasan. So he was very amenable to us because we'd already talked to his friend. They were, we met them on different sides of Shikoku at different times. They weren't walking together, but they knew of each other. So there are lots of interesting social relations that are in, uh, go on there.
0: Yeah um uh, thank you yeah interesting uh, while we're on this topic of social relationships um uh, confraternities uh, are a very common uh, sort of theme in, in pilgrimages in Japan what kind of role do confraternities play in, in
2: sort of the Shikoku pilgrimage hmm. to be sure uh, in, in kind of as we're kind of looking for, towards a future um, with new projects, we're kind of thinking about confraternities in, in the context of like sort of the waxing and waning of, of pilgrim pilgrimages to tell you the truth. Uh, as you say, they, they really drove um, pilgrimage systems, especially uh, in the older days. In this study, we looked particularly at, at Sendatsu Kai. So Sendatsu is, is a person who um, has, Passed a, a series of qualifying points, including having done the pilgrimage four times, uh, to, to uh, obtain the status, which some people would translate as, say uh, "guide," uh, but it's an official status. And when you meet a sendatsu, they have like their badge card, so uh, that makes it easy for us as as researchers because if we meet somebody with a with a badge card, we know that that uh, they're they're serial pilgrims uh, to be sure. But in the book, we. We profile um, one particular Sendatsu Kai, and sort of the object of the group is to create more Sendatsu, more pilgrim leaders, and just to continue on the pilgrimage uh, as much as possible. So um, the Sendatsu Kai that we profile in the book, they're traveling one weekend a month, every month, and then they're completing the journey every six months uh with a trip to to Mount Koya. So uh I think one thing this research highlights that, that, that maybe some uh, Ian's other work does likewise is in the case of say a Sendatsukai or even some co pilgrimages being sort of a, a primary or exclusive religious identity where the the, the confraternities are themselves kind of a, a religious cult um to be sure. Uh, in particular, if I could share a memory, I went with um, the Sanmakai which is the Sendatsukai from Ehime Prefecture, and we went to Mount Koya, um and they were finishing up uh, their, their six-month journey, uh, and uh, Radhika, I don't know if you've been to Okinawan at, at Mount Koya, but it's kind of like a scene in a movie uh, with the, the, the moss and the trees and the beautiful graves and so forth, and um, the group Including several elderly pilgrims, you know, make their way through the cemetery. And uh, the two things that I noticed that I think were really indicative of their approach is that number one, there was a memorial for other Sendatsu uh, in the middle of the cemetery. And it was actually rather hard to get to, but every time they went there uh, and they prayed uh, to uh, their deceased brethren uh, as by means of memorial. Um, but then what struck me is when they, had really officially finished this journey of twelve hundred kilometers. Uh, there was no congratulations. There were no slaps on the back. There was no like, "Oh, we're done." Uh, it was it was completely anticlimactic, uh, it, it, remarkably. Because the thought is, um, we're going to go back uh, next month and it'll it will start again um, from 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 Temple One. So, um, it, although you can find examples such as the Samwakai who um, are extremely devoted uh, in general. And this is kind of a, a subject we're interested in looking at in the future in general, it seems that uh, confraternities and perhaps even the send out to system itself, um, it, it's kind of in a state of decline, uh, which probably has long-term implications on not only the Shikoku Henro, but, but numerous pilgrimages in Japan. So, um, while they once were sort of the driver uh, of of the institutions um, they they're sort of they, they appear to be fading.
1: Yeah, I would just add to that there is much more of an individualization going on within the Shikoku pilgrimage and if the era from the bus buses in 1953 onwards uh, certainly, till around the 2000, just after 2000 mark, was the era of group pilgrimages of of uh, and organizations. Since then, we've seen a gradual kind of atomization, individualization. One of the things that struck me very much in the three fieldwork periods that we did in 2018, 2019 was how few groups we met, how few confraternities, how few buses, more and more people are going just on their own by car and so on, which is I think a very modern phenomenon that you do things individually. Um, We met the occasional ones and we do touch on a few confraternities, but I think the main one was the San Makai, which John named uh, did most of the research on um, and even there we give examples of people so there are different people have different motives within the group but the interesting thing is that that's how that that group encourages everybody to do more pilgrimages so those confraternities have traditionally encouraged repeated performance
0: yeah thank you um so uh, finally i i want to Take a step back and sort of look at the Shikoku pilgrimage from the perspective of, of larger pilgrimage studies so these themes of repetition and sort of pilgrimage as a way of, of life uh, how do we sort of understand them in the wider context of other pilgrimages
2: hmm it's a, it's a great question. And, and, and Raisha, uh, we want to kind of tease this a little bit because um, we definitely want everybody to consider kind of a, our, our theoretical perspectives, like in the, in their totality. And um, I, I don't want us to sound immodest, um, but I, I honestly, I oh, think our, <laughs> oh, geez. All right. Uh, I think <laughs> uh, honestly, our principal argument in the book either directly challenges or sort of significantly qualifies every noteworthy theoretical argument uh, made in pilgrimage studies for the mm-hmm. last 50 years. <laughs> uh, so I, I think what we've seen, in in, in Radhika, I'm sure you've seen this as well, um, enthusiasm, I think, for pilgrimage studies has never been greater. Uh, people are exploring the, the phenomenon in so many different contexts in a myriad mm-hmm. of religious and cultural settings. Uh, and we're getting kind of more and more diversity, and we have to really think about, like, what's possible to express um, at sort of an overarching theoretical level. So that's something we approach in the book um, and without sort of giving up uh, the ghost. Um, essentially speaking, we're, we're interested in, in the variability itself um, and how we might describe that and approach it uh, with, with, with methods and in theory. So in, in the case of this particular book, we're looking specifically at the variable of, of time uh, so pilgrimage systems evolving over time to be sure, but um, how pilgrims relationship to a journey is a function of time, uh, whether it's a single day or uh, a six week walk or with many of the people we profile, you know, a good portion of of, of their lifetime. So uh, again, without without giving it all up, uh, we want everybody to consider it. Um, but uh, I think the bottom line, Radhika, uh, I'll throw down uh, the warning. I think if you're in the field of pilgrimage studies, uh, you'd do well to maybe consider our arguments uh, mm. uh, in the context of the bigger yeah. theoretical picture.
1: Yes. Yeah. Can I just add to that, that one of the things that we work for- very conscious of is the extent to which in pilgrimage studies generally, and most of it, the theoretical stuff has come out of Western studies of Catholic, you know, Catholic pilgrimages and so on. Um, And they have not paid as much attention to uh, say Japanese pilgrimages as they ought to. I've been arguing that for a very long time and that message is getting across now To the wider field Um, but one of the things that has constantly been the pattern in pilgrimage studies is to see pilgrimage as something that happens out there that victor turner's famous article the center's out there talking about pilgrims going from home to another place so that pilgrimage is set apart from everyday life it's an exceptional practice what we show Is and what we argue is no, it isn't often for these pilgrims. And we also know of cases in like people keep going back to Lourdes, people keep doing the Santiago pilgrimage, people keep going back to Mecca, and so on. We show that this isn't just something that's special to Shikoku, people often frame their lives around pilgrimage. It becomes an embedded, as Simon Coleman in his review of the book said, it becomes an embedded practice, an embedded habit. It becomes part of life. So what we're actually saying is rather than seeing pilgrimage as something out there, rather than seeing pilgrimage as something detached from home, pilgrimage is very much about home. So we're, we're arguing for a different theoretical perspective to what has been done before, and we're asking people who, in whatever pilgrimage they're studying to consider that point, to consider how pilgrimage, if effectively, lived at home. Just to give you an example of this, a guy we interviewed at length who'd done the pilgrimage, I think, 17 times. He was retired. What does he do? He does it every year on foot. What does he do for the rest of the year? He says... He writes his blogs. He collates his pilgrimage materials. He makes his prints up his pilgrimage photographs. He reads about pilgrimage, about Shikoku, and he plans the next trip. And he showed us pictures of his room at home where he's got all his pilgrimage stuff. Um, he showed us all these. He, he came to the interview with tons of materials that he'd made. So his whole life outside of walking the Shikoku pilgrimage two months a year, was about the Shikoku pilgrimage. At the end of a two and a half hour interview, we finally managed to extract from him that, yes, he did have a wife, he did have a family background, but he that didn't seem to be important to him. That was, you know, that was almost like an irrelevant detail for him compared to The entirety of of, of his life at home being involved with the pilgrimage, just as much as it was when he was on the pilgrimage route itself. So a major theoretical point about it is the way in which pilgrimage is experienced, lived and embedded in daily life, not set apart from it. Indeed, indeed. Thank you. Uh, Well, we've taken
0: much of your time today. uh, But before we say goodbye, um, can you tell me what projects you're currently working
1: at? Um, I'm working currently I'm, well, actually, I, I, should, I should say that I'm retired so theoretically I'm not doing anything but I somehow seem to be addicted to all this academic stuff so I'm currently writing two books trying to make up my mind which to do but one about religion and tourism and one about um, the situation of religion in certain context in the Heisei era but John and I also have an interest together in how pilgrimages die and we're looking we've done some work kind of discussion work about doing some research on declining pilgrimages in Japan you know the 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 fact that some some of the major pilgrimages the numbers of pilgrims are just going through the floor at the moment and even before covid And looking at that sort of stuff.
2: Hmm. That's that's right.
1: But tell them about tell them about El Capitan and mountaineering. (laughs) Well, um, really, kind of born out of
2: out of this study, uh, really two things. The first was when we were doing the field work, and um, I was reminded of how many locations on the Chicco Henro have uh, semi technical rock climbing challenges that are sort of labeled as aesthetic practice. And uh, that really, it really struck me that uh, that those still existed. And actually many of the pilgrims, some of the pilgrims that we interviewed r- routinely uh, engage those. So um, I have one project looking at um, climbing as aesthetic practice in Japan. Uh, and using sites from the Henro, but also uh, numerous sites throughout the country. Uh, But then uh, secondarily, uh, as Ian was saying, I I think um, there has been a dearth of people employing theoretical perspectives derived from Japan and other contexts. And I'm using kind of our theoretical basis from the book to look at uh, serial big wall climbers on El Capitan. El Capitan is one of the the tallest and easily most famous uh, rock uh, in the world for for rock climbers. So, um, looking specifically that, in Yosemite at, Park, at, you should add yes, that's right in Yosemite National Park. So, um, people who uh, climb the rock uh, have climbed the rock a hundred times, or one hundred and thirty times, or one hundred and sixty times. So, amazingly, uh, we see um, incredibly similar discourse. People saying things like, uh, "This is both." Uh, Familiar uh, and sort of novel. Every time I come, it's a, it's a different experience, uh, and yet it's kind of like coming coming home. So, um, this is, I guess, the first sort of out of sample test for some of our ideas that that, that and methods that we came up with uh, in the context of this project. So, yeah, uh, kind of a natural extension from from what we're doing.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. These projects sound very fascinating. Um, so please do uh, look forward and continue um, keeping up of these projects. Uh, thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.